following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are going to get into a new series this morning uh, on the book of Ephesians. So this is a good time. If you've got a Bible, uh, pull it out. And if you've got a Bible app like the version, that's a really good one, uh, then you can uh, get that warmed up and get into it and uh, close down your social media apps along the way and get the, uh, get the app open to Ephesians. I think we've got some Bibles on the back table. If you want to get one and just borrow one for the morning, you're welcome to do that. Um, I'm looking forward to this series. I took a course on Ephesians at Regent College, and uh, that, it's probably not everyone's idea of a holiday, working through the Greek text of Ephesians, but uh, I enjoyed it. And even before we'd gone away, I was keen to preach on this book. Uh, it's, I kind of had it in mind, and it's been an important part of my, my own spiritual journey for a long time, particularly because there's a prayer in the middle of this book, which we'll get to uh, at the end of chapter 3, which has been such an important prayer for me in my life. And I, I've, I've prayed. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and I've prayed it so many times and prayed it often on my knees, and prayed it many mornings, in just all kinds of situations and circumstances. And it has just been one of those parts of Scripture that's given me words to say to God um, during some interesting seasons of life. And so um, now to be able to step back and journey through this whole book uh, with you is, is going to be great, and I'm looking forward to that. So what we're going to do this morning is what we often do at the beginning of a new series. We're just going to try and get our bearings with this book, and uh, I'm going to do a bit of a scene-setting message, and we often just try and get to grips with the big picture of a part of Scripture that we're working through and, and get to know what, what this book is and what it's, what it's trying to do, what God's saying through it, and, and where it sits in the big story of Scripture as a whole and just how it fits within that overall, overall narrative story that the Bible is telling because Ephesians is an extraordinary book. But it's easy for it just to become another list of Bible verses and a whole lot of promises or principles or precepts or whatever it is, or just an abstract, detached piece of theology. And it is not that. It is something so much richer and deeper. And so I think the best way into that is going to be to look at the first two verses of this book. And we're just going to look at the first two verses. Um, but I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to read this book uh, over the next little while and keep reading it. Um, we've got study sheets. Michael mentioned that. Uh, so grab those. And if you're life group and you want to hook into the series, then those sheets will be up by each Sunday. And that'll, I'm, I'm trying with those study sheets to give you some more questions that kind of tap into the so what side of this. Uh, not just what was going on in the first century, but how does this all wash out in my life today? So there's, there's 10 or so questions that, that I'll be churning out each week that'll just take them and use them as you want to, just to keep engaging with the series. There's also, um, in your bulletins, we've noted a commentary. Uh, it's in that Bible for Everyone series, and uh, it's on Book Depository. If you want to grab that, the Tom Wright commentary on Ephesians. I think it's, it, it, there's a few books in, uh, in, in one volume there, but really good, readable companion guide to the series. So all that to say, there's a few ways of engaging with us, um, and I'd encourage you not just to rely on Sunday mornings, um, this, will be, this will be central, but keep on feeding, uh, keep on finding those threads that you can keep on working with this book and um, listening to the Spirit speak through this, and then you'll get far more out of these mornings when we come together, okay? So for today, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're only going to take two verses this morning. I promise we'll speed up after this. 
Uh, we'll get into the body of the letter next week, but for this morning, just two verses, and hopefully this will give us our bearings and, and get us started. So I didn't think it was worth pulling someone else up to read just two verses of Scripture, so I'm just going to do it myself, if that's okay. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, first word we hit in Ephesians is the word Paul or Apollos in Greek. And so the first question you should have if you're reading Ephesians, studying this book, is who's Paul? Right? Pretty, pretty uh, straightforward question. Uh, who is this guy? Uh, he introduces himself here. He's clearly the author of this book of the Bible. Uh, but Paul's story is so connected to the story that he's telling in Ephesians. Uh, it's easy to read this book like any other book of the Bible and read it just as a, a list of Bible verses. Read it as just a, an abstract piece of Bible teaching. Just a list of commands or promises or whatever it is. But if we are going to get to grips with Ephesians, we are going to need to get to grips with Paul. Because this was written by a real person. And he had a real life. And he had real experiences. And his own journey is inseparably connected to what he writes here to the Ephesians. And so let me just give you a few details that are helpful to know with Paul. When you think about this guy, Paul, Paul of Tarsus, he's often known. In the first half of his, his life, the first half of his adult life at least, the best word, I think, to describe Paul would be terrorist. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't say that flippantly, I don't just throw that word around, uh, with all that that word means, you think about our context today, you think about even this past week, right, an, an attack in El Paso that's now classified as a domestic terrorist act, and you think about terrorism as we hear about it and experience it today, you think about modern day terrorism organisations, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, whatever, you can trace the history of terrorism back Two groups like the one that Paul belonged to, in all seriousness, because he belonged to a group that was an, an extremist, ultra-nationalistic, ultra-conservative, um, ideologically driven sect, which was an offshoot of Judaism, but way outside the mainstream. And it was a group that believed that it was perfectly legitimate to use violence for religious and political means. And that's basically the definition of terrorism, isn't it? To be, to be using physical violence for religious, political purposes, to create fear. And that, that's what Paul did. He was a homegrown terrorist. And the target of Paul's terrorism, the target of his violence, were Christians and churches, people like us. And I think sometimes we can kind of almost glamorize Paul in his early days. And we, we, we talk about him as a, as a persecutor of the church and say he didn't like Christians and that's all true, but there's plenty of people in New Zealand that don't like Christians, but they don't do what Paul did. I mean, Paul was extreme. Paul was the guy that, that would drag men and women out of their homes into the streets to oversee them being publicly stoned to death, um, like he did with Stephen. Uh, Paul's the guy that would break up homes and marriages and drag husbands and wives apart, drag them away from their children and lock them up. 
He was the guy that would subject Christians to, to beatings and floggings mercilessly in public places to humiliate them and shame them. That's who Paul was. He was a violent, violent man. He was a murderous man. He was a bloodthirsty, barbaric kind of guy. Uh, and the most astonishing thing, I think, about Paul in those early days is that as he was doing all this, as he was literally overseeing the, 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 the murders, the killings of Christians, he genuinely believed that he was doing this in the service of Israel's God. It's incredible to think, isn't it? But in, in those days, Paul, re- he read his Old Testament, and he believed that God's will for his life was to kill Christians. That God's will for his life was to lock these Christians up and, and, have, and, and have this movement wiped out. And that in doing so, that was his act of worship. That was his service to God. Because he believed that these, these Christians were an absolute blight upon Israel, an absolute plague upon Israel's faith, that they were abhorrent. And they were leading the whole nation of Israel astray because they were following these made-up fairy tales about this man, Jesus, who had been crucified of all things, and then they claimed had been raised from the dead and, and was Lord of all. And for Paul, that was utter blasphemy. Absolutely abhorrent. The worst kind of lie you could tell. And he believed that his calling from God was to wipe this out, stamp this out, even if it meant resorting to physical violence, which it often did. That was Paul. That was Paul in, in, in his early years. And then he met Jesus. And he was, he was traveling to Damascus, following this tip-off, to grab a few more Christians and throw them in prison. And he met Jesus. He met the very one whose name he was trying to snuff out. And he met Jesus. And everything changed for Paul in that moment. And this was the most radical transformation, a total rethinking of everything he thought he knew about God and faith and Israel and the world. And it just everything fell apart and had to be put back together. And Paul realized, must have realized, as he looked at himself then, that rather than being this great crusader, this, this great champion and defender of Judaism, he was a man who, whose life had just been completely evil to this point. He was the one who had been abhorrent and had been involved in all this hideous, heinous stuff that was so displeasing to God. And Paul realized that he needed to receive the grace, the forgiveness that came from this man, Jesus. This man whose legacy Paul had tried to destroy, now he realized this is the one through whom God is working. This is the one through whom now the purposes for Israel, the purposes for all humanity are being carried forward. It's happening through this one. And Paul received that forgiveness and that grace on the Damascus Road, and his life was forever changed. And I say all of that, and that's just a, and you can read that in the book of Acts. That's, just, that's Paul's story. It's a good idea, actually, as you read Ephesians. Go and read Paul's story in the book of Acts and his transformation and his journey and where it went from there. And I say that, really, because as you're reading Ephesians and as we're going through Ephesians, I want you to hear Paul's story. I want you to hear the man. I want you to hear his heart. You know, we're, we're going to talk next week about the grace of God. But that's easy just to be another sermon. That's easy just to be, let's talk about grace as an idea, as, as a thing. But do you think when Paul wrote about the grace of God, do you think he was just writing a Bible study? Do you think he was just writing just kind of this good Christian teaching? Like this, this came out of his life because he saw himself as the worst of sinners. This guy that had been murdering Christians and his life had been profoundly impacted by the grace of God. And so now all Paul wanted 
was for other people to taste what he'd tasted. All he wanted from that day forward was for other people to, to, to catch a glimpse of the crucified and risen Jesus, whom he had met on the Damascus Road. And so when you read these, these writings of Paul in Ephesians, try to hear his own story in the background, because Paul's talking about a grace that he has personally been transformed by and is now extending to the Ephesians and extending to us. And so Jesus got a hold of Paul's life on the Damascus Road, and he, he not only at that stage transformed Paul's life, but he gave him a job. So Paul became not just a follower of Jesus, he became an apostle of Christ. That's how he describes himself. If you look at verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And to be an apostle just means to be sent. It means to be sent out. And Paul was sent by Jesus. And Jesus says to Paul, Paul, I'm going to send you out with this, with this message, this good news, the good news that the crucified and risen Jesus is now Lord of all. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Paul, I'm going to send you out to teach this, to preach this. But... Here's the beauty of it. Here's the humor of God in this situation. Jesus says, Paul, I'm not going to send you to your own people. I'm not going to send you to your own countrymen whom you love. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And who are the Gentiles? Well, that's us. That's Unless you're Jewish. And there may be some Jewish people in the room. But all those of us that are not Jewish, we're the Gentiles. And it's a lovely thought to think that Paul would have despised us. Like he would have hated us as Gentiles. If, if Paul, that, that's the pre-Christian Paul, if he met you as a Gentile, he would say to you that you are cut off from God, that you are despised by God, that you're just a complete outsider in every sense. You're not part of the story. You're not part of what God's doing in the world. You are far, far away from God and there's really no hope for you. You're just, you're just an alien to everything that God's doing, and you're just one of these kind of filthy, dirty, unclean people that's really got no right to even exist, let alone inherit any of the promises. That's how God saw us. That's how Paul saw us, rather. That's a nice thought, isn't it? So that, that was Paul's view of Gentiles, and Jesus says, so, so those people, Paul, those people that you just cannot stand and you refuse to even be in the same room with, let alone sit at a table, share a meal with, that kind of thing would have been totally off the cards for Paul. Jesus says, Paul, those are the ones that I want you to go to. Those, those are the people. Because I died for them too. It's not just about Israel now, Paul. It's going beyond that. This gospel is much bigger than that. And Paul, I want you to go to the non-Jewish people. I want you to go to the non-Jewish areas. And those filthy, unclean Gentiles, I want you to welcome them in with open arms because the gospel is for them. And so that became Paul's life. And that became his, his, his work, going around the Mediterranean world and planting these, these Gentile churches in predominantly Gentile areas. And again, I say that because as you read Ephesians, we're going to read this stuff about Jews and Gentiles. And it's easy for all that just to be kind of, well, you know, that's, that's theology, that's Bible teaching, that's whatever, and it can all be kind of detached. But just try to hear what this meant for Paul. When he writes in chapter 2 about those who are far off and those who are near, who's he talking about? The far off ones are the Gentiles and the near ones are the Jews. And he talks about how these two groups are now being brought together. And how have they been brought together? They've been brought together in the body of Christ, 
in the, in the crucified body of Jesus. They've been reconciled. And so Paul says the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It's nothing that should now separate all these groups of people, but they are now one in Christ Jesus. I want us to hear that this was Paul's journey. This was his heart. This was his story that he had had to come to terms with that, and it wasn't easy. That These were people he thought were, were completely cut off, and now he recognized that they are equal participants in the gracious gift of eternal life that God has given us. Paul had to reconcile himself to that first before he could write that down. And so this has been his journey. This wasn't easy for him either. But when he writes it, it's out of a long, hard struggle. And now that recognition that the gospel is for everybody. And so it should bring Jew and Gentile together. I want you to hear Paul's heart. I want you to hear his life. I want you to hear his passion behind these words. They are personal. They're very earthy words that Paul writes. And so by the time he writes Ephesians in particular, we've got to picture Paul now not traveling around anymore. He's not jumping from here to there. He's not planting churches anymore. What's he doing? He's sitting in a prison cell. Yeah, he's sitting in a prison cell in Rome. And he's, he's literally chained to a guard. He had some freedoms in that place, but he was on trial and he was awaiting a hearing before Caesar, he hoped, at least before Caesar's court, uh, and he, that very much could have ended with Paul's execution. And he was, he was aware of that at this point, that, that his, this trial could end with his life being taken. And so what, what I just find extraordinary you know, is out of this dirty, damp, musty, smelly prison cell, you get Ephesians. Well, how does this even happen? You know, this, this stunningly elegant work, this piece of writing that is just breathtaking, comes out of a prison cell. And you think Paul probably didn't think it would amount to much either. You know, he's writing a letter here. He's writing to his friends. He's writing to some Christians in another country. He probably thought this, you know, it might encourage them for a while. It might do some good, but then that, that'll be that. Imagine if Paul had known that letter would not just be read by a few Christians and a few churches. It would be read by billions of people down through the centuries and now would become part of Holy Scripture and would continue to encourage and edify people all over the world, like it is today here in Auckland in the 21st century. Paul, that would have blown his mind, wouldn't it? But that's the journey that this letter has gone on. And it is a letter. This is just a, a letter to a bunch of churches that Paul writes from a prison cell. It reminds me a bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who ministered during the Nazi regime and part of the, the confessing church, the resistance movement going on at that time. And he was imprisoned. And out of his prison context, from his prison cell, he wrote what have become his two best known and most loved works, Life Together and Costly Discipleship. These incredible Christian classics that have encouraged so many people in their faith wrote it from a prison cell. Now, there's obviously a difference. This is inspired word of God. This is inspired scripture. But it just shows you, hey, out of the darkest places sometimes, in the darkest prison cells, look at how God's working. Look at what he does. Maybe that speaks into your life in some way out of whatever you're going through. God's light shines and continues to move and bring amazing things. So Paul writes this letter. That's a little snapshot of Paul's life and story, and there's a lot more to say about that, and you can read that in the book of Acts. But I want to go on and introduce you to the people that Paul's writing to, because that's important as well. Paul introduces himself here, but he also introduces the people he's writing to. So look at the second half of verse 1. He says, To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we 
encounter a bit of an issue in the text here because if you look in, your, in the margins of most of your translations, it will tell you that those two words in Ephesus are not in the earliest manuscripts that are available. So most likely, those two words were not part of what Paul originally wrote. Most likely, that, that sentence originally read, to God's holy people, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And it was missing in Ephesus. Uh, that was probably added on later, which changes the flavor a bit because that means that we don't have a designated audience for the letter. So if it wasn't written to Ephesus, who was it written to? And the majority view on this is that probably what Paul's doing at this point is he's writing a more general letter, a circular letter that was written for the Ephesian church, but not just the Ephesian church. It was probably written to a group of churches in that area, uh, which was in Turkey, a collection of churches around that part of the world that Paul had spent some considerable time, the city of Ephesus, but also some other cities like Colossae, Laodicea, and so on. And Paul's probably writing a letter that he had intended would be passed around those churches and would be read out in those churches and would encourage the believers in a range of different cities, not just one particular location. So including Ephesus, but not limited to Ephesus is the way we should see it. And it makes sense because the nature of Ephesians, and if you've, if you've read it, you'll, you'll, you'll pick this up, is it is more general in nature. So it's not a letter like, for example, 1 Corinthians, where Paul is putting his finger on particular issues in that specific church and calling people to account. You know, he'll say, there's someone here who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Stop it. Imagine that being read out in church. Yeah, I know. I'd feel the same. But he doesn't do that in Ephesians. That's what he does in other places. But here, this is a more general exposition of the gospel of grace. And Paul just paints this, this incredible panorama of the whole story of salvation, of the gospel, of God's work, and then how that translates into all sorts of complexities of human relationships. Um, parents and children, uh, husbands and wives, slaves and masters. Uh, church relationships, and the way in which the gospel continues to work its way out. So as you read Ephesians, it is more general in nature, not targeted in on particular situations, and that reflects a more general audience. Now, finally, and here's where I want to focus, look at the greeting that Paul gives to this church in verse 2. Usually in, in the ancient world, letters just had a greeting of one or two words, but Paul kind of gives this his own flourish, and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, this greeting revolves around two really important words for Paul. The word grace and the word peace. That first word grace is one that we throw around an awful lot as Christians. And uh, we know this word and we talk about the grace of God all the time. But it's, it's important to remember that in Paul's context, grace, grace was not a Christian word. Uh, it wasn't a church word. It wasn't a preachy kind of word. It, was just, it just meant gift. Uh, it meant favor that could be given. And gifts and favors were given all over the place, not just in a church context, in all sorts of situations. Gifts could be given. Gifts could be received um, in, in every sort of context. So it was a very commonplace kind of usage, whereas it's become more of a spiritual word today. But it wasn't. It didn't start there. But there were really strict 
ways in which all of this happened, in which gifts were given and gifts were received. And so if, if a gift was given, it would always be from someone in a greater position of power to someone in a lesser position of power. And it would always, 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 gifts were always given with an expectation of return. Always given with that expectation that somewhere along the line, you are going to return the favor. Somewhere, somehow. I give you money for such and such, you are going to return some kind of service or some kind of benefit or some favor. When the time comes, I'm going to call on you and I'm going to expect you to reciprocate because of, don't you remember this gift that I gave you way back then? So always there were these expectations about giving and getting back. And there was always that expectation. And so you start to see here, I think, the genius of what Paul's doing uh, the genius of the way that he takes this word, just really commonplace word, and he infuses it with the gospel. And he says, just think for a minute about this gift that God has given. Just think, and what is the gift? Well, it's the gift of his son. That's the gift. It's Jesus. Jesus is the gift. And Paul says, this gift, yes, this gift is given from one who is of far greater power to those of us who are far lesser, but unlike every other gift that you're ever going to give or ever going to receive, this gift comes absolutely free. This gift is freely given, and it has to be freely received. It comes without any strings attached. It comes without any expectation of return. This gift of Jesus Christ into our world, into our lives, with all of that means and all of that involves, Paul says there, there's, there's nothing. Not only is there nothing you can do to ever position yourself to earn that, but having received it, there's absolutely nothing you can ever do to even try and repay it. There's nothing you can ever do to pay it off and pay it back. Christians will try, right? And don't some of us spend our lives, try, we're trying to pay something back or pay it on or pay it forward or whatever it is. We're trying to pay off some debt to God or we're trying to pay off some guilt that we feel or some shame that we live with or some sense of legalistic obligation and we kind of become defined by it. Might not realize you're doing it, but you're just paying back, trying to pay back, pay back, pay back. And Paul is saying, this gift, this grace, this incredible mercy that we've been shown by God, all you can possibly do with it is receive it. That really is it. All you can do is receive it. But I think the irony is receiving is actually one of the hardest things, isn't it? It's something you have to learn to do to receive it. We know this in church, don't we? Just we're caring for one another. Much easier to offer help to someone else than it is to receive it. Yeah, harder to receive it, I think, a lot of times. Because what gets in the way? Everything. Our pride, our ego, our whatever it is, social. We just we get in the way of ourselves. We get in the way of what God is wanting to do. Paul is saying the only thing you can do with grace is receive it, but receiving is learned. Receiving is a very hard discipline for us because we're not used to it. It's too good to be true. It can't possibly be. But this, this is the, isn't this the Christian life? It's learning to receive at the deepest level of our being the incredibly free grace of God. Learning to really accept that we're accepted. Learning to really accept the fact that we're loved in spite of ourselves. That, I think, takes a lifetime to truly put ourselves in a posture of just, just receiving it and realizing there's absolutely nothing I can do to earn it and having earned it and having received it, rather, there's nothing I can do ever 
to repay it. It is utterly, utterly free. Paul's going to talk a lot more about grace in this letter, but he wants us at the outset to grasp something about it, that it is fundamentally free and it can only be received. That's why, by the way, if you go back to the second half of verse 1 for a minute, that's why he, he, he calls the Ephesians, when he describes them, he calls them this particular name. He uses this particular word. It's translated as God's holy people. But in some of your older translations, he says saints. Have any of you got a translation that says saints at that point, like a New King James or something like that? And, and he'll say to the saints in Ephesus. And we hear the, the word saints, and what do we think? Like Mother Teresa. Or we think Saint Augustine, or we think of the, 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 the biblical writers. We think St. Matthew and St. John and St. Paul and St. Peter because those are the super holy spiritual elite, aren't they? We think. But if Paul was here and talking to us, he'd say, no, 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 no. Anyone who has received this gift, anyone whose life has been touched by the grace of God is a saint, by definition, you've never met a Christian who's not a saint. Right? We may not be saintly. Lord knows we're not most of the time. But nevertheless, we are saints because our sainthood, to put it like that, is not something you can possibly achieve. It is only something you can receive. It is a gift given to you by God of that standing before him where you are holy, you are set apart, you are his. You belong to him. You are dedicated to him, chosen by him, and you're a saint. So every one of us in this room who is a Christian is a saint. How about that? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at St. Sam down here. Yeah. Yeah. There's St. Andy at the back there. St. Elaine. St. Gary this morning here. You know, any St. Nicholas here? That's always funny. Or St. Patrick. But when you, when, you, when you have morning tea this morning, just greet each other as, Hey, St. So-and-so. Hey, St. Mary. Hey, St. John. It reminds us of something, even though it's cheesy. But it reminds us, and I think Paul wants to remind the Ephesians at the outset, this is who you are. This is your identity. You are saints. So we've got to hold on to that and hold on to it even on the days when you are at your most unsaintly. And that might be today. But on those days and at those times when you are the worst version of yourself, let Ephesians remind you that in spite of yourself, In spite of our own selfishness, sin, and idolatry, we are saints. Not because of anything in us. Your sainthood is not in you. It's not who you are in yourself. It's who you are in Christ. It's who you are in God. It's because you were loved from the foundations of the earth. We'll talk about this next week. And God delights in you. And he's transformed you by his grace. It's a sheer gift and it can only be received. But hold on to that status. Hold on to that mantle. Not so that you get all puffed up with pride, but so it reminds you that even on our worst days, I'm still a saint. I'm still a saint because I'm, I've been made holy by Christ and I stand in his grace. So hold on to that. Remind yourself of your own sainthood next time you look in the mirror. So Paul talks about the grace of God, and he's going to come back to grace time and time again in this letter. It's something that can only be received, never achieved. And then he says, grace and peace. And that word peace, is, it's, it's a Greek word, but it's built on a, an older Hebrew word, shalom. We've talked about this a lot here at Shore. It's a word just going right through the Old Testament with such a rich background. 
it, it does mean peace, but peace is not always the best translation because it doesn't mean just a peace in my heart. It doesn't, you know, we talk about do you feel at peace and do you have a peace about this and do you, I'm not having, I don't have a peace about this right now. Well, that's, that's maybe a fraction of what shalom is, but it's just so much bigger. It's just so much broader than that. The best way that I've come to think of, and not just me, many people, have come to think of, of shalom is wholeness. I think that's the best word for it, wholeness. It's a sense of taking the broken pieces and putting them back together. And isn't that what God does? Isn't that what the gospel is? It's taking broken, fractured, scattered pieces and graciously putting them back together. And he starts by taking the broken pieces of our relationship with God, where we were estranged and alienated from him, and putting those back together so that we can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. That is the, that's the heart of shalom. That's, the, that's the, the, the most important kind of wholeness that we need in our lives. But then having done that, God then continues to outwork this peace, this shalom in all kinds of ways. He starts taking the broken pieces of our heart and putting them back together again. The broken pieces of ourselves, our own inner being, our minds and emotions, and starting to, to put those back together gradually and graciously and carefully, reassembling, making us whole people again. doesn't mean that we're never going to struggle on the inside. doesn't mean that we're never going to struggle with anxiety, with depression, with low self-image, whatever it is. But it means in the midst of that, God is still bringing wholeness. He's still outworking his peace, even in the midst of that inner turmoil that so many of us experience. And then it keeps going into relationships, and God's shalom works its way out into marriages, and it begins taking the broken pieces of homes and families and putting those back together. Not always, because people can resist shalom too, can't they? Let's not be idealistic about it. But where hearts are open, God starts taking broken pieces and rebuilding lives and rebuilding futures and, and rebuilding families, even extended families, and rebuilding communities. And shalom goes into neighborhoods then. And it goes as broad as, as the world itself, through nations, communities, even our relationship with, with the earth, with creation itself. The, 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 the vision of shalom that the scriptures give us is vast. It is huge. It is of a world that is reconciled with God in the center and all these reconciled relationships working as they should. And even though we look around in the present and we see precious little shalom, if we're honest, right? We see so little of it. What do we see? We see brokenness. We see loneliness. We see isolation. We see the breakdown of relationships much more often then we see that wholeness. But Ephesians reminds us that even in the midst of that brokenness, God is at work. He is at work bringing this peace, this shalom into the world. He has acted in Christ decisively. He has, brought, he has poured his shalom into this world through Christ. And now by the Spirit, he is at work, outworking grace, outworking peace in our lives and then through us into the world if we have eyes to see it. We must have eyes to see it. We've got to look for it. We've got to hope for it. We've got to pray for it. And it is there. While we were in Vancouver, Anna and I, uh, our family visited a church right in the middle of, of Vancouver City, right in the central heart of the city, a church called Westside. And Vancouver is a really secular city, you know, in many ways, much like Auckland, although in some ways possibly even more secular in some of the, the, the values that, that have been embraced there. But uh, we went along to this church, uh, a fairly big church in the middle of the city, and um, when we got there and the service started, they announced that this was going to be a baptism Sunday. And, you know, you think, oh, this is going to be great. You have a few baptisms here and hear a few testimonies. 
Well, there were, I think, 27 people getting baptized. Um, it was amazing. More people that I've ever seen getting baptized in one setting than, than I've ever experienced. And it just seemed unending. You just have video after video after video of people talking about their lives that have been transformed. Uh, people from so many different cultures, including a couple of Kiwis that we heard, from a range of ages, a range of backgrounds, and just hearing these stories of people that were caught in addiction, uh, finding hope in Christ, um, people from all kinds of dysfunctional relationships, people who had had very little good passed onto them by, by parents and through family, but coming to find hope, coming to find hope in Jesus. People who had so many times you'd hear people lonely, it was a huge thing in Vancouver, just the loneliness in a massive city. You know, I mean, you get the same in Auckland, right? Just this loneliness, even though we're surrounded by people. And that was just a common refrain, just lonely, lonely people. But coming to find hope, coming to find peace, coming to find grace, one after another. And then each of them would come into the waters of baptism and go through the waters and come out. And much like the celebrations we have here at Shore, just the cheering and the applause afterwards just to see a life reborn. And the knowledge that that's not the end of the journey. And these are not suddenly perfect people. This is just a new beginning, really. And the God's grace carries them forward from that point. But just a reminder that even in our day, God is still at work bringing shalom into people's lives, even in very, very secular spaces. Whether it's Vancouver, or whether it's Auckland, or whether it's Ephesus in the first century. This is what God is doing. And we've had many baptisms here over the last year. And we've celebrated lives transformed here. And even in less obvious ways, all kinds of ways we can't see, God is still working. And so I think Ephesians encourages us, even though the brokenness is in our face, and what we see is heartache and breakdown and loss and brokenness, we need by God's Spirit to keep asking, where is shalom? Where is peace? And where can I see grace? Because it's there. Even in a prison cell, it's there. Even in some of the most secular cities in the 21st century, it is there. We need to be people of faith to believe this, that God's grace and peace are still at work as much as they were in the first century and participate in that whenever we see it. And so Paul brings these two little words together, grace and peace. They are just small little words, but they open up this huge window on the gospel and on the whole story of salvation and the challenge for us is to ask how these words apply to our lives and transform our experience today. I've tried to do this just in a really ordinary way. I remember when I preached on Galatians, and Paul has a really similar greeting there. He says grace and peace there as well. And I took those two words, grace and peace, and turned them into a kind of an email signature. So that on some, not, not all, but sometimes when I'm emailing someone, uh, I'll just sign off grace and peace. And it's just one way, it's just my way of hoping and praying for that person or that family that I'm writing to that they might experience something of what Paul is wishing and praying for the Ephesians. That they might experience that God's grace might rest upon their life somehow. I don't know how, but that God's peace, that God's shalom might invade their circumstances and their hearts and minds and bring, bring something new, bring something life-giving, bring something fresh. That's just one small way of doing that for me. But I would encourage you as we finish just to ask yourself and, and allow God to reveal to you how is he wanting to make his grace known to you? How is he wanting to make his peace known in your life? 
How is God encouraging you to put yourself in a position of receiving? Of just receiving. Of just opening your arms and trusting there's nothing that you can possibly do to try and reach out and strain for it and strive for it and try and grasp it. You can't do that. You can only receive. And I think what God is calling us to do is just put ourselves in that place of opening our life and receiving deeply the grace and the peace that he is wanting to bring. Maybe it's peace for you this morning that you need, that, that sense of God's peace and just believing that God is going to pour his peace, his shalom into some really deep places in your life, some really deep places in your circumstances where you're not, you're not experiencing much peace at all, but just trusting by his spirit that he wants to bring his shalom into whatever you're facing, into your circumstances, and then that you'd be so filled with peace that it would somehow bubble over into your family, into friendships, into working relationships, and it would spill over into the world. Or maybe it's grace for you, and just receiving from God that word that you are loved, in spite of your own belief that you're unlovable, or your own unworthiness, or your own resistance because you just can't believe that God would ever really show this much favor to someone like you, just believing that God loves you so deeply. If we really took hold of the grace of God in all of its power and all of its simplicity, our lives would be so different. Our lives would be so transformed. It's the simplest truths of Scripture that need to take the deepest root in our heart, aren't they? It's not complicated. It's just that we resist allowing God's grace to really fill our hearts. But if we were transformed by the grace of God, it would have an incredible impact on our lives. It would move us so much further forward than all the legalistic obligation in the world. That's a very weak engine to live your life upon. It's the grace of God that provides real power. And God says all you can do is receive. So I just invite you for a few minutes as we prepare ourselves for communion to put yourself in that posture, whatever that means. Maybe it's physically just opening your arms. Maybe it's just within the quietness of your heart, just putting yourself in that space of receiving God's grace and peace. This is not just a little greeting at the beginning of a letter that we blow past to get to the good stuff. This is the heart of what God is doing in the world. It's the heart of what God is doing in our lives. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just quieten our hearts. Let's pray. Let's just prepare ourselves to receive communion and put ourselves in that space of receiving Father God, we do that now. And God, it's so, it's so unnatural for us in so many ways. And my sense is, God, even as I'm, I'm saying these words, maybe it's not so much that we are trying and striving to achieve something and to pay something back, but that maybe for many people here, they've given up trying to do that. And now they're just frustrated and depressed and full of guilt because it hasn't worked and they don't know what else to do. And they're just kind of stuck in that place of feeling like they haven't measured up and now there's no more. There's, there's just hopelessness. Father, I just pray you would invade our lives and our, our thinking and our mindset and our situations with your grace, with your peace. And just remind us of the incredibly abundant gift that you give to each of us. Father, just remind us as we sit here this morning just how deeply loved we are by you. That you have given us your beloved son that you have given us the one who is most precious to you, that you've given him to us. And now, God, we are filled with your spirit. And in spite of whatever we're dealing with in life, you are for us and not against us. You're with us and you go ahead of us. 
God, I pray you would speak your grace over our lives this morning. I pray that you would speak your peace over our lives this morning, particularly over any anxious hearts who are here, over any restless souls who are here, over any troubled minds who are here. God, those who are battling this morning, I pray that you just now speak your peace. God, speak your shalom. Just remind us of what's always been true. You haven't changed, God. You're the same yesterday, today, forever. But reveal it to us afresh, we pray. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. We pray you'd fill us afresh with your spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.